This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. Monkeys or wildlife in your garbage bins running around your houses. It's not an uncommon complaint among Malaysians that wildlife, more often than not monkeys or long-tailed macaques, are pests roaming in their neighbourhoods, rummaging through bins and causing a big stink in their wake. But as natural spaces dwindle due to deforestation and expanding human activities encroach on wildlife habitats, conflicts and interactions between humans and wildlife have become almost unavoidable. So that's where the Animal Neighbours Project comes in with their community-based approach to mitigate human-wildlife conflict, especially in urban areas, through a combination of research and education. So today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Shamini Julita Paramasivam. She's a veterinarian. She's an associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey. And she's also the founder and project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. She's going to tell us more about the work that they do and also how they are guiding the wildest creatures of all us humans to foster better cohabitation with other wildlife in Malaysia. Welcome, Shamini. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for the introduction, Juliet. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. So it's a pleasure to see you again. We caught up, gosh, almost exactly two years ago, you know, Shamini, to talk about the Animal Neighbours Project. And you guys have come uh, so far, you know, you've been doing so many projects since then. So I thought it was a good time to catch up. But just for anyone who who might not have heard us uh, before, uh, can you just remind us, you know, what the Animal Neighbours Project is all about and what inspired you to start it? Yeah, sure. Um, So the Animal Neighbours Project is, as you said, a community-based project. Um, that we work with communities to try and understand what's happening, uh, what's going on in this situation. So predominantly we work in urban areas because that's kind of the, the trickiest part of um, conflict. And we try and understand what's going on. So instead of just implementing mitigation strategies, we try and understand what's the actual problem. So people complain about wildlife and predominantly right now we're working with monkeys because that's the highest number of complaints that we get. Um, and we understand what's happening from a research perspective. So we speak to the locals to see why are they a problem, um, to try and understand, you know, if they are a pest, from what perspective are they a pest? Is it the bins or is it just that they're coming into homes? Um, And then we we look at the landscape as well and see how can we then mitigate this this problem. So sometimes it's about reducing um, interactions that's happening. And sometimes it's about, you know, various other strategies that can be uh, implemented. So it takes a long process, um, and that's the tricky part because lots of time people want a quick solution. You complain, there needs to be a quick fix. It never is. Um, but I, I believe strongly this is the way that we should be approaching conflict, is understanding the reasons for the complaints, the understanding why the monkeys are behaving the, the way that they do, and then we generate a, a strategy. Um, and even when you come up with a strategy, we've got to look and see whether is it working because sometimes we implement certain things and yes, we've fixed the problem in that area, but then the monkeys have just gone to a different area. You know, so it's it's understanding that that whole landscape. We're also trying to get, we try and get involved with research as well as much as we can and, and publish, which is very tricky to do with the very small manpower that we have, um, or lady power, I should say, as we're predominantly a female-based um, uh, group. Um, and, and that's what we're currently doing, plus lots of awareness activities from a local community level. Okay. and. I think, you know, some folks might not even realize that these these kind of cases are called human-wildlife conflict, right? Broadly speaking, do you think you can help break down what that is? You know, why it's something that's more than just a conservation concern? Uh, you know, and why is it on the rise? Why, If it is on the rise, why is that happening? 
Yeah, that's a really good question because even within the scientific community, there's a lot of disagreement with the with the term human wildlife conflict now. Uh, so, you know, back in the time when we used to talk about human wildlife conflict, it's because there's a negative connotation to it. So, um, you know, people are not happy with the way things are going or that the animals are actually hurting people, reducing their income. So there are very, very various reasons and different type of animals. You can think about sharks to chimpanzees taking food to, you know, um, crocodiles. These are all, if they're in their inhuman vicinities and they are reducing uh, crop or they are causing harm, that was labeled as human wildlife conflict. And we've used that term quite widely, you know, we, there's lots of research about it. But the researchers also felt along the way that this kind of brings animals in a negative term. So we've moved into human-animal interface or human-animal interaction, which is sort of the, the term of choice or preferred term that we use. However, and this is through my own experience speaking to people in the community, when you use that term human-animal interaction or, or interface, people feel like it doesn't address their problem. To them, it's conflict. It's an issue. So we have to be very delicate when we use this, this, these terminologies as well. And we at ANP, we use it quite interchangeably. So from a, from a more research and more scientific perspective, we use human-animal interaction, which shows the interaction that people have with wild animals or just any animal, really. Your interaction with a dog, your dog and cat is still human-animal interaction. But your interaction that you have with a wild animal that's living close to you, you know, that's, that's interaction. If it becomes a problem, then, then we use the term conflict. So sometimes we use these, these terms interchangeably, but I think it's important to respect the people that are facing the problem as well. And sometimes if we come across as being very lighthearted, we're very pro-animal, people um, disagree with that approach. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that happening in my own neighborhood chat group. You know, the the animal lovers are like, "Oh, we need to, you know, coexist peacefully," and then the others are like, "They're not damaging your homes," you know. So, but yes, you know, you know, both sides have their their points, and and of course, that's where you guys come in, right? You're trying to raise awareness about human wildlife interactions. Uh, you're doing that through various uh various means, isn't it? And can can you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we are trying to create an awareness um, mainly in the local communities that are affected by these things. So people that are facing the problems on a daily basis. So these are individuals that, you know, when they wake up in the morning and they open their, their door, their monkeys in their garden, they might have faced, you know, like their bins being tipped over because the, the monkeys have passed that area. And that's really nice. You know, it's a nice buffet um, to have the food in the bins. So these are people that face these, these problems. Um, and uh, we are trying to create this. Uh, one is create an awareness about the, the, the problem of human-animal conflict, right? But secondly, also trying to make people that think that there are pest species or you know wildlife shouldn't be in those areas. We're trying to create an awareness about coexistence, that if, if you've chosen to live in an area that's close to, to wildlife, or if you've chosen to live pretty much anywhere in Malaysia, really. It's a country that's so rich in biodiversity, flora, fauna. You're going to come across some form of a wild, some form of wildlife, right? So whether it's um, a, a monkey or whether it's a spider or something like that, you have to think about what we're doing mm -hmm. and how we can reduce negative interaction with, with animals. So we try and do this from various things like running awareness activities at schools, just so kids know what they're looking at, that is not just a monkey, but it's a type of monkey. 
Um, so just recognizing what are the common ones that they might see in Malaysia, why it's so great that we can see these monkeys, because people in different countries don't have these animals. Um, so we do it in schools, we do it at university levels to kind of also increase the awareness about the opportunity exchange and job perspective as well. Mm. Um, getting involved in conservation, you know, as a veterinarian, zoologist, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and also we are doing, I guess, more fun stuff, you know, like nature walks with the community. So we're really lucky that we've got some fantastic volunteers from the local communities that know the space. And that's exactly my, that was my vision is not for us to bring in externals, but the people within the communities, the um, people that love the area and know it, they now help us run nature walks. So we're doing one in Bukit Kiara, for example, where people can get involved. They take the trail with, with a, a local and we talk about the animal perspective and the interaction. So it creates some awareness that way and it creates some kind of appreciation of the amazing things that's in your backyard. So when you say you you take them on these walks, right? So it's to better, uh, maybe, is it to also help people better understand animal behavior as well? Is that kind of one of the aims as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it's one is recognizing what their natural um, habitat is like. Yeah. So where they would live. One of the common things that people often say to us is that, oh my God, pity the monkeys, they don't have any food. And actually what they have in their the natural habitat, there's lots of various things that they can eat. But, and I think we talked about this the last time, it's a matter of cooking a meal or having a McDonald's takeaway. And the monkeys obviously prefer the McDonald's takeaway, which is human food that's available easily in the bins, you know, on people's um, kitchen counters and stuff. But to work on, you know, that they, they forage for a long time. They spend a lot of hours in a day foraging for food. So we in this during these nature walks, we point out some of the things that they actually eat. Shrubs leaves, stuff that, you know, it's available, but it requires a lot of time for them to forage and find, which is great for their behavior perspective, because that's what they're supposed to be doing, um, but don't end up doing. So this misconception, so through these walks, we're also trying to address the misconception that animals don't have food in, in these spaces. The other thing as well is to think about this carrying capacity in areas. A, a certain area will keep a certain number of um, a population. Right. So if there is, um, you know, X amount of food available in the wild, then the population won't swell as much. But once you start introducing human food, then, of course, the population is going to thrive because there's so much of food. So, again, it goes hand in hand is if you're going to complain that too many monkeys, we should try and address the fact that we should take away the, the human aspect of the food, because naturally in the wild, they will maintain a population based on what the resources are available. So it's something as simple as that that we we talk about um, during the awareness. Um, so yeah, it's things like what they what they eat, what they look like, um, male, female, what the babies are um, are like, and the behavior that they show. So behaviors to, are so important because it's recognizing, for example, something as simple as the eyebrow lift. So when we look at each other, we tend to say "Hey" with a lift eyebrow, right? In yeah. its positive interaction, it's a welcoming interaction. Macaques, on the other hand, if they lift their eyebrow at you, that means that it's a threat. So it's something as simple as this that we, we talk to the community about. If you see an animal and you look at it in the eye and it lifts its eyebrow at you, do not lift your eyebrow back. It's not a nice interaction. <laughs> look away and keep a distance. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if they do little things like a fear grin, so they lift their lip and they look like they're smiling at you, it's not a smile. It's actually the animal's nervous. So again, look away and walk and keep a, a distance from, from them. So it's little things like this that you, if you know, you can keep yourself safe, right? Instead of doing the wrong thing and then you're, prov you're, you're, um, you're kind of uh, provoking them. And then that makes them protect their family. And if, how do you protect your family? You have to be aggressive, right? So this, this is the little things that we can do to avoid aggressive behavior or what I would say is protective behavior. Okay, all right. And we will talk a little bit more about, I want, I want to talk about macaques in particular, a little bit more um, after this quick break. Uh, I'm speaking today to Dr. Shamini Jalita Paramasivam. She's a veterinarian. She's an associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey in the UK. She's also the founder and the project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. And that's exactly what we're talking about, living in harmony with wildlife, uh, coexisting peacefully with them as their habitats dwindle, thanks to, uh, well, human activities, really. We'll have more after this one quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me all the way from the UK today is Dr. Shamini Julita Paramasivam. She's a veterinarian. She's an associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey. She's also the founder and project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. So the Animal Neighbours Project uh, is a community-based organisation. They use research and education to try and mitigate human-wildlife conflict in urban areas in particular. They look for solutions, of course, on how to mitigate these issues. So before the break, Shamini, we were talking talking about like some of the work that you guys do. And, um, you know, we were talking a lot about monkeys, right? Macaques in particular. I think uh, more often than not, I see the complaints here. Like, it's just in my neighborhood and, you know, where I work and all. It's always centered around macaques, right? Long-tailed macaques in particular. And I know you've done a lot of research on them and a lot of Animal Neighbor Project also uh, work is centered on them, right? I don't think a lot of people know that they are actually considered endangered uh, according to the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, right? You want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point to bring up. So the the long-tailed macaques, or in Malaysia, we call them kura. Mm. I don't know if people know this, but the name kura actually came from the sound that they make. So they make this sound, and that's how it came came about. So fun fact, um, why we should appreciate them. Um, these guys are, yeah, you don't see them, you know, they're, they're quite unique to, to where we, we live. Um, but because we see them, in other words, we see them more often in urban spaces because they have learned to adapt. They're very clever creatures. Yeah, they've learned to adapt to living in in human spaces, and they thrive in, in some of these areas. Um, people think that they are they are common, and you know there are loads of them in the wild. And actually, that's quite the opposite. Um, we are losing them in large numbers in other areas, right? As as uh, deforestation happens, as um, we are there's, there's management strategies to reduce populations in various uh, areas or various countries. So the numbers are dwindling. And they're also used quite vastly in biomedical research. So they're taken in, in large numbers as well, especially after COVID. So the, these animals are, are, you know, while they appear to be in large numbers, they are actually not. So based on the research that was done, and I was privileged enough to be part of um, uh, this, this uh, group um, that led the, the research, um, it shows that the numbers or the, the there's an incline of the numbers reducing. So the trend that's showing is in years to come, the population is going to decrease less and less, which means if we don't do anything, and that's why the IUCN status is so important. It's not just to showcase that, you know, these are endangered, 
but it's basically a, 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 a warning. If we don't do anything now, in 10, 20 years to come, they're going to go endangered. So in Bangladesh, for example, there's a, macaque, a local macaque um, species that has actually gone endangered. So you wouldn't believe, like the word macaque and endangered just kind of doesn't match. Yeah. But actually it's happening. Um, they are, and in other places, the population of different macaques um, you know, are, are reducing. So we are trying to get ahead of the curve in a sense that we're trying to work on these long tails before the problem occurs. And I think if you look at the if you look at what we've done in in most of the with most of our wildlife, not just in Malaysia, I'm talking about worldwide, we tend to wait until the numbers are very low, and then we work on it, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at like the the rhinos and the blue whale and all the different examples, that we wait until the population is so small, and then we say, oh my god, we have to conserve them, and we have to do all that we can, and funding has to pump into all these cons- conservation of all these important species. But I think that we should try before that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of researchers and a lot of um, uh, activists out there who are trying to get to these animals before the numbers go really small. We just have to reduce the, the incidences of um, that's causing the population to, to reduce and then try and maintain it so that we don't lose them any further. And I think that's what we should be focusing on right now. Okay. And I bring up a tax because, you know, um... Again, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people complain and we see them in such huge numbers. We don't realize that, you know, they they are actually, uh, you know, uh, considered endangered. And, you know, some people, the solution to them is just to cull them. And I think there was a huge exercise in Malaysia. Was it in 2012 where they killed thousands of macaques? And um, yeah, so I guess, you know, I just wanted uh, folks to understand that, that, that they are considered endangered. And there is, of course, all these ongoing, con- well, I use the word conflict, right? But there are solutions, right? And that is something that uh, the Animal Neighbours Project has been doing. You want to tell us about some of your the, the programs you put in place, you know, with the, the bin latches and things like yes. that? Yeah. So I'm um, coming back to trying to understand what the, the, the problem is. People often complain, right, um, either to us or to the wildlife department, Prelitan, local council, various different groups that they complain about the, the monkeys without recognising that there's, there's a reason the monkeys are, are there. So when you complain about a monkey, um, a lot of times you are not looking at the at the big picture. And unfortunately, and I really feel for a lot of these organizations like the wildlife department and also the local council, because they have to do something, right? People are complaining and it's a matter of safety as well. If you've got macaques coming into your home and you are not practicing a way of shutting them out, then there's a matter of safety, from a you know disease perspective, from a safety perspective, these animals, you know, if they need to protect themselves. They're wild animals after all. So if people don't do this and they start complaining, someone has to do something about it. Mm. The nice thing to do, of course, is to catch them and move them to a different space, translocation. Everybody loves that word. Let's just translocate, you know, wildlife. It never works out the way we want it to. Number one, in order to, to translocate an animal, you've got to know where you're taking them to and the impact of the animal that you're introducing into that new space, right? Yeah. There's a whole guidance from the IUCN guidelines on how what you do when you translocate um, um, animals. Because the impact that you have when you take a group of monkeys and you move them to a different space where there are other monkeys living there or maybe no monkeys at all, you're going to change the, the ecosystem. So that's something to think about, that, that people must take ownership. If you are going to complain and you say, don't worry, lah, they're going to translocate. Mm. Really? Like where? Secondly is, 
do we have the space now with urbanization? Do we actually have the space to translocate animals? And are we just moving them to a different, different area? So based on, based on all of this, usually the outcome ends up being, let's just reduce the population, which is to, to cull them. So to what we're doing at ANP is we're trying when there's a complaint, we try and intervene and speak to the community to see what's going on. And we have done these workshops in some of the, the urban areas to address to try, try and find out what's the main cause. So again, coming from the people, right? What are the main cause of the, the complaints? And one of the main things that came out was the bins. You know, the monkeys, they go into the, the bins, they cause a big mess. Um, rats comes after crows, blah, blah, blah. It's it's messy and it's a nuisance to be cleaning up after. So we we kind of um, stratified like what are the most important things that we needed to address. And the main thing that came up for most of these areas, the rubbish. So we then designed this uh, monkey proof latch. I say it now so easily, but obviously it took many, many, many steps <laughs> to try and monkey proof something because <laughs> if you think about it they're they're as smart as people right they are as resilient as people which means that they will keep trying over and over again right so it's not like you know you're trying to keep something away from your dog or your cat you just put a little a lid on it or you lock it fine monkeys will try and they can open different so we had very many different prototypes before we finally got to the version that we have now and then we tested it so we put a bin full of fruits and stuff inside, yummy things, locked it with the latch and we put it out in various areas and just recorded and watched what the monkeys did. Mm. So they toppled the bin, they pushed it around and, you know, they weren't able to open it. So we're now sure that it is a monkey-proof latch. So we are actively, we've got some, some funding um, through the Primate Society Great Britain to produce these latches in, in um, larger numbers, so commercially. And um, now we've got we've got some numbers that we can actually use in you know a, a larger community so now we can see what the impact of that is going to be which is with so through our little research that we've done we've noticed that when the monkeys can't get access to the the bin they just move away mm. so it's a matter of changing behavior as well and i'm hoping that the minute they recognize the latch after a while they will look at it as like oh you this area has got the latches i'm not going to bother even going there right yeah. so if all the bins in the area are latched up why would they even attempt? Then they'll just move on to another side or stay in an area that's um, that has got you know uh, food for themselves. So that's kind of the it's a two prong approach. One is to stop them accessing the bins, but secondly is to cause behavior change. When you learn that you can't access something, do you even try? No, and that changes your behavior. So if we can sort of change that that behavior, then will we change the the, the movement of the groups? Hopefully. Yes, you know, and that will reduce the, the complaint. So that at the moment is the major thing that we're trying to do, which is, you know, to stop the, the access to the bins. But I will always say, and I have to remind people that safety is really important. So making sure that the monkeys don't come into your homes is extremely important. Making sure that if you live in an area where monkeys come in, then you have to invest in, an, in like a netting system. One, because it keeps you safe. But secondly, then again, it causes this behavior change because once they recognize, oh, I can't get into that house, I wouldn't bother, right? I'm just going to skip that house. But the problem is if it's a reinforced behavior of like, if I try in the morning, they usually leave the windows open. If 
morning doesn't work in the evening, or they always leave the windows open in the evening, then they're going to keep trying, you know, to enter that, that home. So that's what we have to keep re-emphasizing to people that it's not just the changing the problem then, it's changing the problem in the long term because it's very much like people, you stop something, if you close the doors to McDonald's, after a while, people won't even bother trying to the drive-through, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's something as simple as that. Okay, okay. So so those are, so that is the work that you're doing uh, in terms of the mechanics. But you know, from and from your experience over these past few years, right? I mean, are there also other, I guess, quote unquote, common uh, problems that are being reported, or people are coming to you asking for help? You know, uh, regarding other wildlife as well. Any other problems? Yeah, um, yeah, mechanics always the biggest one. But the second one that we're hearing quite a lot about is uh, civet cats. Mm. Um, you know, the civet cats have got this very distinct pandan smell. So yeah. people often say, I can smell pandan in my house. Nobody's baking a pandan cake. <laughs> You've got a civet cat somewhere near your house. Um, and these guys, again, very agile. They can, you know, they walk on these tiny cables that we have, um, but they're very heavy footed. So if they are on your roof, you feel like you've got a burglar walking in your house. A bit scary. Yes, um, I've experienced it, so I know. Yeah. But it's so cute though. They are. Um, but you know, it's the same thing. They come and they eat. People are moving towards a greener space, which is great, right? Where everybody wants now a, a garden where even if you've got very urban uh, balcony, you're in an apartment, people are growing vegetables or, or you know fruits, which is great. But remember, as you do that, you're going to draw wildlife in because it's a natural resource for them. So some of the complaints we've heard is people getting fed up because they are, they've got their little plantations in their home mm. and the civet cats are coming and accessing that. Um, you know, they're eating their pet food. So those are also common complaints. People that leave um, food out for their dogs, but the dog doesn't necessarily finish the food. Next thing you know, you've got a civet cat that's eating the, the food. You know, so yeah, we do hear complaints mainly from um, monkeys, but if not, then it's also civet cats that um, cross occasionally. But I think these are the these are the more common ones. And and when you get these sorts of like queries, so I mean, if they're coming to you, they're looking for solutions, right? They're they're trying to to find ways to mitigate this, right? So what what would you guys do? You know, in situations like this, how would you educate? How would you help? Yeah, maybe you can explain that to us as well. Yeah, so when, when a complaint comes to us, usually usually it comes from someone who is also who knows what we're doing. So they're trying to change you know, practices within the community, which is great. So we kind of use them as an ambassador in the area to garner other um, support. So we try and build a little community first. And then we have, for example, like an online meeting to talk about what are the problems. And then we do a survey to see where are the major problems so we can map it out in a in an area um, what people's concerns are because it varies right and everyone has a different tolerance if you have a little bit of a background or you've grown up appreciating wildlife you might have a higher tolerance versus someone who has not so we we map all of this out and then we go to the area and survey to see you know does it tally where the, the where's the wildlife coming from which areas you know is there a big bin. So in one of the areas, for example, there's a big bin um, in the school that's not latched. So the monkeys actually pass the houses to get to the school bin. Mm. So if we, we can engage with the residents as much as we can, that's not going to solve the problem. We've got to look at the school as well. So we try, that's what we do. We map the whole area to see what their movement and all of this takes time because we're watching these animals 
we're looking at where they, they use the space. And then we design an, uh, an action plan. So we design this action plan and then pass it to the community to see what can be done, what's realistic, where can we help, what can they do, those, those kind of things. So it's a very much, like I say, it's community-based. It's not us telling them or they telling us. It's an agreed um, action. And of course, you know, sometimes it's because it's long, it's, it's a long process. People also get fed up halfway through. You know, it's like, I'm doing all of this, nothing is changing immediately. So we get a few people that sort of drop out along the way, some that join in, but it's about perseverance. You know, it's just kind of keeping that flag flying constantly because we have a lot of evidence from research about how the behavior of people or the presence of people changes the, the monkey's behavior. Mm. Yeah. So we did some research. Um, actually, we collected this data some time back, but we, we hadn't had a chance to analyze it, but we, we have recently and with the presence of people, so we looked at what monkeys did with people around and with, with people not around, right? Okay. And when people were around, the monkeys actually interacted less among themselves. So they were busy doing other things like trying to get food or just being inactive, watching people instead of interacting as a group. So just our mere presence changes the monkey's behavior within a, within a group which is not great because we, we're making them less monkeyish, right? So that's just the, the presence with uh, uh, behavior. We also compared these, the monkey behavior within different zones. So the area that we were studying in Kuala Selangor, there's um, a more of a, a um, high risk, like um, forest area okay. with very, there, there were human stuff and, and there was human traffic, but it wasn't as much. And then we compared it with, with medium interaction areas where there was some amount of people, some amount of feeding and compared it again to high interaction where there's vast amount of people, vast amount of traffic, lots of feeding going on. And it's so interesting to see that these animals behaved differently according to those, those groups. Mm. And they, they would do things like they were less active in the areas where it was high interaction because they were constantly waiting to be fed. They also interacted less among themselves. So again, they were less um, uh, monkeys. They were less. They were behaving less as monkeys. But they also fed on natural things less in those urbanish areas. So it shows that you know what we do influences the way that they behave. They also chose to stay on um, anthrop what we call anthropogenic structures. That means structures that were made by people. They chose to sit on those more than tre a tree or, or on the ground. I don't know for what reason. It's not like these things weren't weren't available in the other areas. They were, but for some reason, they just they just somehow chose more of these human structures instead of natural structures when when people were present. Interesting. And, and yeah, so it's very yeah. fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating. And whatever it is, trying to get closer. Because we've seen also people love to feed animals, right? Like you said uh, earlier in the interview, people like, oh, poor thing, they're so hungry. And they go and give them things like bread and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Not great things to do, isn't it? No, no. I mean, it changes. Again, it makes them dependent because mm -hmm. it causes this behavior change, right? That yeah. they think humans equals food, which is exactly what we found in these areas where people were present. They just sat and waited for people to come in. So instead of foraging, which is what they should be doing, they would just sit around waiting. Because, you know, when a person comes, it will be lots and lots of, of bread. 
So it, it changes the way that they behave. They learn. They learn very quickly. They're like us. Mm. You know, they, they learn very quick. So if they know that food is going to be present, even if it's not every day, if it's occasional, then why, why bother? I just wait around and the food will come to me, right? So it changes their behavior. But it also for them, physiologically, it's not good. They, their bodies were not made to eat as much carbs, you know, with the, with the bread and stuff like that. So it, you can see that the weight changes. So people think that monkeys are thin. They should be. Um, the ones that we start seeing now, you can see that there's obesity with some of these urban monkeys, not just in Malaysia, but in many other countries. I'm sure people must have seen. There's quite some famous uh, pictures of obese monkeys in, in Thailand and in Hong Kong that are just being fed. People think it's cute. It's actually really cruel because obviously obese animals are going to have problems like heart condition, endocrine issues. So, you know, just it's getting our mindset reset to the fact that wild animals need to be a certain size for them to be healthy. All right. Shamini, let's just go for one more quick break. When we come back, I just want to talk more about, you know, uh, some of the projects that you guys are working on and, you know, how how you, uh, people can get involved with the Animal Neighbours Project. Speaking today to Dr. Shamini Jilita Paramasivam. She's a veterinarian. She's an associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey and also the founder and project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. We're talking about how we can best live better with wildlife, especially as, we, as their spaces are dwindling. Thanks to human activities, of course. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. On the line with me today, Dr. Shamini Julita Paramasivam. She's a veterinarian. She's an associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey. She's also the founder and project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. The Animal Neighbours Project, which is a community-based project that uses research and education to mitigate human-wildlife conflict in urban areas in particular. So as Shamini has been explaining to us, yes, it's mostly monkeys, macaques, uh, but a lot of it, you know, is influenced by our behaviour, you know, and that's coming to influence the wildlife's be uh, wildlife behaviour as well. So there are, of course, solutions on how we can mitigate this, and that's where the Animal Neighbours Project comes into, comes into play. So you guys are trying your best to, I guess, be that middle ground, right, between irate humans and, you know, helpless monkeys and, and other wildlife who are just trying to find some food to eat, right? They're just trying to live and they're doing it, yes. of course, in the easiest way that they can, like any normal uh, sane person or sane animal would do. Yeah. So looking back, I mean, you guys have been around for a few years. And as I mentioned, you know, you, you've really grown, you know, doing so many more projects. What would you say are some of the greatest uh, achievements to date, uh, you know, for the Animal Neighbours Project? I think that a few, there's a couple of things. One is, I guess, uh, building a little bit of a reputation in, in Malaysia. The fact that we've been asked to, for the second time, is is a great thing. Um, it shows that there's a, uh, there's a demand for awareness on it. Um, people also within the community, there are some community members that, you know, still keep in touch with us. They, in fact, share photos, which is amazing because, mm -hmm. you know, it's great to see the appreciation for, for uh, wildlife. So it's little things like this, like changing the mindset of people that I would say is the, the thing I'm most proud of um, because that's what we aim to do is changing mm -hmm. mindsets, right? Um, but also coming up with this, with a framework on how to mitigate um, wildlife. It's a tricky thing to do. It's you know resource heavy, it's long-winded, but if we stick to it and we can prove that this framework or this model works, then what's stopping us or any other group, 
around the world from using such a, a method. So, you know, things like how we came up with the bin latch sounds now really simple, but it was a long process. And if, it, if this is one step towards um, coexistence, then there's, there's proof that the methodology works. So I think I'm most proud about the fact that we have persevered with the, the, the methodology of speaking to the community, sort of speaking to the animals by watching them. So we've got this, you know, we, look, we speak to the community to understand that perspective. We look at the animals to understand their behavior perspective. We look at the, the ecosystem, the environment, and then design a mitigation strategy. And I think that is one of the things that I'm, I'm also very proud of. And of course, with that, of course, comes also challenges, right? And what are some of the challenges that uh, you guys are also still trying to overcome? Oh, yes, many, many challenges. <laughs> um, the, the first thing that stands out, obviously, um, is the, the staffing. It's very difficult to, to keep people in the in long term. Number one, because, you know, the project is mainly based in urban areas, which means, you know, the, the, you want the urban quality of life for your staff as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's expensive, living in KL. Yeah. Um, but we are a non-profit, so the funding that we have is very limited. So two things is the resources, of course, from a human perspective is I would like to us to have long-term staff members, but then you need to also pay people well in conservation. And that's that's a tricky thing to do when you're dependent on um, uh, you know, fundraising or we apply for grants. And it's very, very, very competitive, especially after COVID. Um, there's far less grants now, or at least the cost is, is less what you can apply for. Plus, applying for funding for a species like macaques is always never, never a great thing. You can apply for funding for orangutans, you'll get it, millions. <laughs> but you but you apply something that says a macaque and everybody's like, what? Why? <laughs> They're endangered, heavens. <laughs> I know. So that's what we're trying to do. And I think the, the IUCN status change of endangered helps a lot because now, you know, again, you're, you're helping an endangered species. So it's just making people aware about that. But I think those are the, the major challenges is also trying to get people to, to jump on board. It can be very deflating. You know, you try and you talk about it, but it takes a long time. Um, and I think sometimes people always ask me, what makes you still do this? And I always say that there are times where I think, oh my gosh, I'm still trying to convince people about this a good, you know, decade later. But when you see the small wins, when uh, uh, someone in the residential area sends a photo of a, a photo, a beautiful photo of a macaque, that to me is a win. I, I just feel like, oh my gosh, how have we got to this point where people are taking beautiful pictures of macaques? Um, th these are things that keep me going. Oh, that's wonderful, Chairman. You're doing really, really good work. And and I I guess, you know, for anyone who's listening, just before we, we conclude, right, um, what help would be most useful to the organization? You know, whether it's from individuals or organizations or maybe even the government. Yeah. What help would be most, yeah, most beneficial? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Again, um, collaborations are the way forward. You know, we can't do this on our own. Um, co uh, collaborating with corporates, you know, developers, that's the way forward. So I think collaborating with different groups, um, different either individual research groups is something we're always open to. Mm -hmm. um, so anyone listening who is interested, they don't have to be animal people. That's the other misconception as well. You don't have to be a zoologist or a veterinarian. You can be a, a psychologist or you can look, you know, you can be a, uh, someone from event management 
all of this human-animal interaction is a multidisciplinary um, career. So anyone can contribute into it. Someone with IT skills can contribute you know, into how can we, um, there are different ways where you use machine learning to reduce human-animal uh, conflict or negative interaction. Um, so anyone who has a, an interest can actually get involved. But also if you're running a project or you've got a magazine or something, then trying to get this information out there is really important. Um, yeah, and also trying to, what we're trying to do is also create a, a staffing profile that's quite diverse. And I have to um, just shout out to my team as well. You know, I might, I might, I'm leading it, but I'm nothing without the, the team. And we've got a fantastic group of people and volunteers and collaborators locally and internationally um, who, who really make this, you know, a success. And people that keep coming back because it's challenging, but they keep coming back and we kind of, we kind of um, support each other from that perspective is, is what really helps. All right. And of course, funding. Funding is very important. So anyone is yeah. interested, uh, get in touch with you, of course. Yeah, get in, in touch with the team and just see how they can collaborate and how they can work together with you guys. Yeah, it's just a small things like even, you know, we organize nature walks um, and we ask that people donate at the end of it because we don't we don't make money from these things. Yeah. So, you know, just tiny things like this, um, buying merchandise, all of these things for not just us, but I guess any nonprofit organization. The small amounts of funding always make a difference. It's not like it goes into people's pockets. It goes into trying to make a difference. Okay. All right. Well, Shamini, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, thank you for doing the work that you're doing because, you know, a lot, there's a lot of us here who want to find ways to, to live together in, in harmony. So, yes, there are solutions out there, as you said. Uh, we just need to work to, towards finding it, right, and towards achieving it. That's pretty much what I'm getting as well. Uh, yeah. There are thank solutions. Thank you so much for having me. No, no, it's my absolute pleasure. Uh, before I let you go, any last message, any concluding message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Maybe about how, you know, ANP can contribute to the larger goal of wildlife cons conservation in Malaysia or anything to the list that you'd like to say? Um, uh, to listeners, I, especially to the younger community, is if you have a vision of something that you want to do, whether it's for wildlife or anything else, make sure that you stick to it and believe in making a change. I think if you believe in making a change, you will work towards it. That would be my ending words, I think. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ravidi, for joining me today. I was speaking to Dr. Shamini Jalita Parmasivam, veterinarian, associate professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Surrey, and the founder and project lead of the Animal Neighbours Project. If you'd like to find out more about the Animal Neighbours Project, you can head to their website, which is just animalneighboursproject.org, or you can follow them on their social media channels. So I think that's uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, probably. Yeah, Shamini? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So follow them on their social media channels. I go for their walks, join them on their walks you know i saw on your uh on your social media uh pages you know you're always updating there so folks can keep in touch that way uh but of course if you miss any part of our conversation today you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth you can also find it on the bfm app this has been earth matters on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 you have been listening to a podcast from bfm 89.9 the business station for more stories of the same kind download the bfm app